<clears throat> but we're uh, actually ending our sermon series in the doctrines today. Uh, this doctrine is the doctrine of eternity. <clears throat> and you'll have to forgive me, my voice is a little rough. I have been suffering a little bit of a, a cold this week, and um, I got too enthusiastic in singing some of the songs this morning, and so my voice is just a little bit uh, wanting to punish me. But we're talking today about the doctrine of eternity, and this is what the 11th doctrine of the Salvation Army says. We believe in the immortality of the soul, in the resurrection of the body, in the general judgment at the end of the world, in the eternal happiness of the righteous, and in the endless punishment of the wicked. And if there's a way for our doctrines to end with a very in sort of forceful, emphatic note, it's in that last statement, in the eternal happiness of the righteous and in the endless punishment of the wicked. Before we get to that, we're going to look just a little bit at the, the immortality of the soul. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. Chapter 21 is what was read for us earlier. It's going to be our base text, but we're going to jump around a little bit. Uh, and before we get into actual scripture, we're actually going to do a little bit of history class. I know that's what you all wanted when you woke up this morning. You said, you know what, I want to go to church and have someone uh, teach me a little bit about history. Well, you're welcome. Here we go. The concept of the afterlife is found in almost every major culture and is central to every single major world religion ever. There is no culture... Uh, in human history that has ever denied the immortality of the soul. Uh, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Urs, Sumeria, the Akkadian Empire, Babylonia, Assyrians, Hittites, Canaanites, Greeks, Romans, all have concepts of the afterlife. Um, one of my uh, favorite ones is the, the, uh, the Egyptian mythology of the afterlife. Your heart gets removed from your body and is placed into a sacred jar, and one of the gods takes that heart and weighs it on a set of scales uh, against the feather of righteousness, and if your heart is found to be worthy and righteous, then you get into heaven. Do you know what happens if your heart is found to not be righteous? You go to their equivalent of hell. It's interesting, every major religion, it doesn't matter which one you talk about, every single one has a concept of the afterlife and the immortality of the soul. And in fact, C.S. Lewis said this, uh, you do not have a soul, you are a soul. You temporarily have a body. The body in which we live in is a uh, perishing, fleeting thing. Uh, if you paid attention to the video that I showed this morning at the beginning is the call to worship, it said, you were going to spend much more time dead than you are alive. If you were to take the entirety of human history as a measurement uh, of, uh, of, a, of a yard long, your life on this earth is a pinprick on the yard scale of eternity. You will spend more time dead than you will have alive, but your soul is immortal and will live forever. And so we believe in that, in the, the immortality of the soul. Um, and this concept, like I said, has been around uh, for a very long time, and it's not actually until recent years, uh, recently, and, and recently I say the last 200 years of human history, that people have started debating whether or not eternity exists, whether or not the human existence goes on uh, forever and ever. It's been an accepted fact of almost every religion for all time, and yet 
in the last 200 years, we've seen an attack on sort of the idea of the spiritual. And I understand why it's, it's easy if you attack the spiritual and say there's no spiritual. That means uh, not only do you have no God, you have nothing uh, else to worry about because really what does it matter? If your soul doesn't go on and on and on forever, if it just blots out now when the moment of you, you die, what does it matter what you do with your life? You can act, behave however you want with no responsibility or accountability. That actually makes for an easier world for you. I mean, do you disagree with that? I mean, you know, some of you look like you're asleep. That's okay. But a little bit of feedback, come on. Let me give me the amens and the hallelujahs or any, any sort of nodding. But if you live without accountability, it's an easier way to live than if you live uh, accountable to anyone. Amen? And so C.S. Lewis, uh, who was a prolific Christian author, uh, sort of tried to counter this argument by saying, look, the body is the thing that's fleeting. The body is the thing that it's going to be here one minute and, and gone the next. Scripture says that we're not guaranteed to a single minute other than what's in the, the Father's plan. That we're not guaranteed to tomorrow. We're not guaranteed to the sunrise. We're not guaranteed to anything. What we are guaranteed to is that your soul will live forever. Which then begs the question, if your soul is going to live forever, where is it going to live? Welcome to Christian Doctrine 101. We're going to start here with the eternal happiness of the righteous. This is a good thing for us. If you're a Christian, you know God, you love God, you worship God, you serve God, we know where your soul is going to spend eternity, in heaven with him. We read uh, a little bit earlier in Scripture. Now, when I talk about heaven, uh, what I find really interesting is people's understanding, their visualizations of what heaven uh, is going to look like. So uh, I'm going to say to you, think of heaven. What is the mental picture that comes into your mind? Some people, uh, thanks to the, the Renaissance, fluffy white clouds, fat little babies flying around, playing a harp, wearing a, a diaper, right? Come on, uh, this, is, this is popular culture what tells us what heaven's going to look like, right? Maybe a, maybe a, a personal mansion, yeah, right? Uh, crown of some thought, there, there are no flying babies in heaven. I'm, I'm sorry. There, there are no, no, uh, no flying babies. This actually came into popular culture through a very traumatic and uh, uh, sad event. Uh, essentially what was happening during the Renaissance is uh, babies were dying in their cribs. And so in order to uh, try and comfort grieving mothers, uh, artists started painting flying cherubs, uh, little babies, into paintings to tr- just to try and comfort not as, a, not as a religious or spiritual statement, but just to show to comfort that those babies were in the arms of Jesus. And, and popular culture took hold of that. And now if you watch a cartoon about heaven, you're going to see a flying cherub with a diaper, with a harp, usually blonde hair. I don't know why. Culture is apparently biased against anyone who didn't have blonde hair. But that's where this... And so, so <clears throat> the reason that I bring this up uh, is... is Mainly because when we think about heaven, when we think about the concept of heaven, uh, a lot of what we think about is actually misinformed by popular culture. Now that also being said, don't get mad at me, but wait until the end. Some of it is also informed by mistranslations from some of the the Bible translations that we use. Um, So some of you are familiar with this particular passage in John 14 too. Uh, In my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. 
uh, do, do we recall that particular thing? And so this uh, actually took hold of a popular notion in Christian culture that when you die, you're going to get your own mansion in heaven. Have, have you heard that before? When you die, oh, I got a mansion up in heaven. Um, that's a great idea, except for the fact that it's uh, found nowhere in Scripture. Here's what's really interesting about this particular passage. In, in Jewish custom, uh, when a gentleman and a woman were going to get married, when they became engaged, the gentleman actually moved into his father-in-law's house. And he started building a room for the bride and the groom to live in after the wedding ceremony. The, the wife still lived uh, in her room, in her whatever, but the, the husband-to-be actually moved into his father-in-law's house. I think it was so the father-in-law could keep an eye on him. Like, let's be honest, if you're a father who has a daughter who may be dating, the father wants to keep an eye on her and him. Am I wrong? Nope. See, I got a, I got a shake of a head. I'm right. And I didn't learn that. See, I, that's not built in my sermon. That's Jesus coming through. Oh, I didn't learn about that until this morning. Just saying. It's in my notes. It's the Holy Spirit. And so what would happen is this, this gentleman would move into the father's house. He would start preparing a place for the bride. So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's not saying he's going up to heaven and he's building you a mansion. What he's doing is evoking an illustration of his love for the church. What he's saying is, I love my followers the same way that a husband loves his wife. This is the first uh, sort of word picture that Jesus created uh, to describe the church as a bride. And this comes very important later on in the book of Revelation where the church is described as a bride descending towards Jesus. It's a, it's a mental picture of the love that Jesus has for the church, which is why the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says that husbands, you need to love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her as a fragrant offering. These mental pictures, these word pictures that are built throughout the Bible uh, are not meant to convey a, a, a sort of a feature, if you will, of heaven, but rather to describe the outstanding love that Jesus Christ has for his followers. The other thing that we, we think about is that uh, that crown. You and I will have a crown. And in popular culture, again, it's a uh, usually a crown beaten out of gold with, with studded jewels inside it. Have you ever seen sort of the, that artwork? Uh, well, the word crown here is actually the same word that they use uh, for laurel wreath. And it's given to people who run races. So some of you will know that the Olympic Games started where? in Greece. And so part of popular culture at the time was this idea that if you ran a race, if you competed in an event, even if you didn't win, you got some form of recognition for participating in the event. It is not modern culture that invented the participation trophy. It was a couple thousand years ago they were doing it. It was a way of you walking in public and being able to say, look at me, I ran the race and I did it well. I finished. I went across the finish line. My wife, <coughs> for the last uh, five, five, six years, has gone to uh, Spokane over the first week of May to run in a race 
called Bloomsday. Has anyone ever heard of this? It's a big race. It's up in Spokane. It happens during May because that's when all of the the trees start to bloom. And the trees, they've got these lilac-y type trees that that, that, they, they, they explode out of this green foliage and just the streets are paved with purple. Uh, and so they, they started this race, and some 40,000 people run it every single year. I have done it once, I have completed it once, and I am now the designated driver to pick up the people at the uh, drop the people off at the start and pick them up when they're done. And I go to church in the meantime. I'd like to tell you it's because I love Jesus just that much that I want to go to church, but no, I've run that race once, and once is enough. Okay? The, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I don't know why my wife expects a different result every time she runs it, but that's neither here nor there. See, she's gone, so I can make fun of her. Isn't that wonderful? But at the end of that race, if you cross the finish line, not coming first, second, or third, uh, I came in some, some 5,627th of my class area. But if you cross the finish line, you know what you get? A t-shirt. says Bloomsday and then the year. This is the same idea. It's not that you win, but that you crossed the finish line. You get this crown in heaven, this laurel wreath, as a, a, a way of essentially stating you ran the race with endurance and you finished You didn't fall away from Jesus. And then, interesting, later on in the book of Revelation, it says that the elders who uh, surrounded the throne of the Lamb actually take off their crowns and throw it down at the feet of Jesus because only one person in heaven should be wearing a crown. And I hate to break it to you, it's not you. There is one person who can wear a crown in heaven in fullness, and that is Jesus Christ. And the elders around the throne recognize it. And in their worship, they say, we're not worthy even of saying that we participated because we understand it's not through our power that we were able to cross the finish line, but it was through the power of the blood of the Lamb and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We're not even worthy of this crown because we didn't cross it by ourselves. My father-in-law is is fond of saying that uh, Nikki once beat him in a marathon because she was six months old at the time and he pushed her in a stroller. And so she crossed the finish line before he did. Why it's a funny story and he doesn't really get tired of telling it. That's the concept. We cross the finish line, but it's not because of our own strength, but through the strength of Christ. That's why scripture says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not about you being able to go out and lift a a car over your head. It's about being able to finish the race that has been set before you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Heaven's an interesting place. We don't have a lot of information about it. Interestingly enough, no one who's ever gotten to heaven has decided to turn around and come back and tell us about it. You can read books about people who had experiences. I don't know if those experiences are true or not. I'm not going to say one word either way, except to say that my personal belief is I don't think anyone who's gotten to heaven has ever come back. Because why would you? If you've gotten into the presence of Jesus Christ, why would you turn around and come back? Even John here says that he sees all this in a vision, not in physical presence. We believe in the immortality of the soul. 
and the resurrection of the body and the general judgment at the end of the world and the eternal happiness of the righteous. And it brings us to the endless punishment of the wicked. Now, you don't usually grow a church by talking endlessly about the endless punishment of the wicked. You were to go out and read any Church Growth 101 books, it would say maybe go easy on the topic. However, I fully believe that if you were to grow spiritually, you need to understand what the endless punishment of the wicked actually looks like. Because if you don't understand the reality of the endless punishment, you will not understand the urgency in which we are to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, a couple of things. Hell comes from the Greek word, uh, it's spelled Gina, but it's pronounced Gehenna, right? Gehenna is the Greek word for hell. If you were to translate it (coughs) fully, it actually translates into the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom was a physical location outside of the city of Jerusalem. We'll get back to that uh, in a little bit. Um, And and we'll say this, uh, that the Bible refers, using this word, uh, quite a few times in Matthew 18, 8, 25, 41, it is referred to as everlasting fire. This is, uh, if you find the word hell in Scripture, it is the Greek word Gehenna, which means Valley of Hinnom. It is referred to as everlasting fire, everlasting punishment, everlasting change, eternal damnation, eternal judgment, and eternal fire. Do you notice every single one of those uses a word that describes an incredibly long time? Eternal, everlasting. In, uh, in, in Matthew, uh, unquenchable fire. In Mark, the fire that shall never be quenched. Luke, fire unquenchable. Second Peter, as the mist of darkness reserved forever. And finally in Jude, as the blackness of darkness forever. Hell is a place for eternity. And so a lot of people uh, don't really understand this concept of hell. Um, Jesus actually spoke of hell more times than anyone else in all of Scripture. Uh, a lot of times when we preach Jesus, we, we really preach the love aspect, we preach the fluffy, hippie kind of aspect, uh, but we don't really match it up with the fact that Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Scripture. He talked about its consequences. He talked about the punishments of hell. Now, I mentioned earlier that this Greek word, uh, Gehenna literally means the Valley of Hinnom. And so it comes to, to ask, why was Jesus saying that the Valley of Hinnom will have unquenchable fire, it'll have fire that lasts forever, it'll, it'll, it'll do all this stuff? Uh, recently, and I say recently, this is in the last 10 years, a gentleman by the name of Rob Bell came out with a book called Love Wins. In this book, he stated that the Valley of Hinnom was actually the place where they took their trash And so what happened is uh, people inside the city would take their trash, they would take it outside into this valley, they would set it on fire to get rid of it because they didn't have modern trash uh, disposal methods like you and I have today. And so when Jesus is referring to hell, he's referring to this valley because that's where the trash is burning. I tell you that because there is actually a slight problem, is that there's no archaeological evidence that they started doing that until 250 years after the death of Jesus. So Jesus wasn't referring to a trash heap outside of the city. What I find interesting is the Valley of Hinnom actually makes an appearance in the Old Testament. Did you know that? The Valley of Hinnom is mentioned in the book of Chronicles and the book of Kings. 
Uh, it mentions it during the reign of the wisest king of Israel, a guy named Solomon. In a couple of weeks, we're actually going to get to his story in the Prophet, Priests, and King series. A little bit of a plug, come by, you won't want to miss it. But what it actually says is that, that Solomon started his reign the way that he was supposed to, with wisdom, with honor, following the will of God. But then later on, his mind was tricked by his wives. It says that he married multiple wives. He married uh, uh, foreign wives. In case you were wondering, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. That's a lot. I'm not going to lie. I'm married. I have one wife. That's enough for me. He has 300 wives, 700 concubines. <clears throat> and what Scripture says is that these foreign wives started uh, bringing his, his knowledge of the spiritual into a dark place. They started corrupting his view of God. It actually says that Solomon started setting up uh, places of worship to foreign idols. There is a god of the Canaanites called Moloch. He's called the detestable god. The reason that he's called detestable is because the way that that god is worshipped is through sacrificing babies alive. You would take a baby, some six months old, and you would place it on a barbecue grate and that baby would scream as it burnt to death. The place where he set up the place of idolatry and worship was the Valley of Hinnom. So when Jesus Christ is referring to the concept of hell, he is invoking a mental picture that every single Jewish person at the time would be well aware of, a place where fire consume the flesh of living creatures and you would hear the screams of torment. I mention this not to shock but to give you an understanding of when Christ talked about hell more than any other person in all of scripture, he was referring to a real place and the reason he was doing that is because he was trying to show us the reality of hell for the believers. We've cartoonized hell in the Christian church. We give Satan a red outfit onesie, we give him horns, we give him a tail, we give him a pitchfork, and we make jokes about people going to hell. Hell is not a place of joking. Um, scripturally, Satan does not rule hell. This is another thing we've done in our culture, is we say that, that Satan sits on the, the throne of hell in the same way that Christ sits on the throne of heaven. And it's just not true. It's not biblical. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that Satan rules hell. You know what the book of Revelation does say? Jesus does. It says that Jesus is given dominion and power over all things and all places, which includes the realm of hell. Satan doesn't control hell. Satan doesn't drag people to hell. Satan's attitude is simply this. He knows he's going there. It's its final destination. He wants to drag as many of the people that God loves there as possible to suffer an eternity with him because why suffer by yourself if you can make someone suffer with you? That is what Satan does. That is what Satan's aim is. He doesn't want more citizens of hell. He doesn't, he's not the, the person wearing a crown, sitting on a throne, judging people and, and coming up with torment for people. That's not what hell is about. What hell is is a, is a, 
a place of eternity, a place of endless torment, and he knows he's going there, so he wants you to be there too because he knows that when you go to hell, it will break God's heart. Scripture tells us that the desire or the will of God is that no man should perish, that no man should endure hell. That's what God wants. But because of his love for us, he gives us the free will to choose either to follow Jesus or follow our own path. And if we follow our own path, we end up in hell. And that's what Satan knows. So he wants to drag as many people there along for the ride. Hell is a place of eternity. It's a place of endless punishment. In the Salvation Army, we believe 100% that hell is a real place. And the reason that I like to make this distinction is because if it's a real place, it means that real people are really going there. And if we understand the reality of hell, we understand that it's a place of eternal torment, the likes of which we cannot even comprehend in our modern society. When you look to your left and you look to your right and you see family members, you see friends, you see co-workers who don't know Jesus, Scripture tells us that is their destination. We should fill us with a different kind of fire, the fire that is mentioned by the prophet Jeremiah that says to God, if I don't preach the gospel, I feel like I have a fire that is burning from the inside out that's going to consume me if I don't mention your great love, if I don't mention your great mercy, if I don't mention that you are an incredible God. When we understand the realities of hell, we should look at people who are going there and understand that they're real people going to a real place and it should fill us with a passion for evangelism. That's hell. I asked you to turn to the book of Revelation 21, so if, you, if you've got your finger in there, go there now if you will. There's exactly four chapters in the Bible that are not marked really with the effects of sin, although this one does really mention it a little bit at the end of the verse that was read for us. But this, this is what was read for us earlier. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I go to prepare a place for you so that you may know that I love you as much as a husband loves a wife. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There is one throne and one king sits on it. One man gets the crown. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself with, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more, neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What scripture tells us is that there will be no temple in heaven. And the reason that there will be no temple in heaven is because God will be with us. When we talked about, at the very beginning, the creation of the world, the first two chapters of Genesis, it says that God walked on the earth, that he made his dwelling place with Adam and Eve and walked in the garden at the cool of the day. The desire of God's heart has always been to dwell with his people. Sin messed that up and he couldn't be in the presence of a sinful people because he's a holy God. I don't know exactly how that works, but that's what 
Scripture indicates to us. Then later on, something interesting happens in the, the Gospel of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. When you jump down to verse 14, it says this, The Word became, sweat, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. God's desire from the very beginning was to dwell with mankind. And he managed to do it in the form of Jesus Christ, who was sent from heaven to earth to dwell amongst us, to become fully human yet remain fully God in order to die for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And then you jump here to the book of Revelation where it says that God himself will be with us, will dwell with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. No longer is there going to be a temple, uh, a church um, in order to go into the presence of God. You're going to be in the presence of God for eternity. There's no more separation from God through the sinfulness of your life because it says that sinfulness has passed away. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more suffering. Every tear will be wiped away. As sad and scary as the reality of hell is, conversely, the joy of heaven is at the other opposite end of the spectrum. Perfection is dwelling in the presence of God forever. Hanging out, worshipping, praising. We believe in the immortality of the soul, in the resurrection of the body, in the general judgment at the end of the world, the eternal happiness of the righteous, and in the endless punishment of the wicked. Let's pray.